This is Tales from the Campanile, a production of the Oral History Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the first episode of our second season. I'm Shanna Farrell, an interviewer here with the Center, and I'll be sitting down to talk to Martin Meeker about the Freedom to Marry Project, which was released in April 2017. Thanks so much for joining us, Martin. Thank you very much, (laughs) Shanna. It's good to be here. Before we get started, I, I kind of wanted to get to know you a little bit. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and about how long you've been with the Oral History Center for? Sure. I have been with the Oral History Center really since uh, July of 2003. I had a, a postdoc for a year here. During that year, I was then hired uh, full-time as an interviewer historian, the same position that you now have. Uh, and that began in July of 2004. I was a regular interviewer historian for many years and then moved into a, a hybrid admin uh, interviewer role, I think beginning around 2010. Uh, so I've been here for, um, well, you count the years. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, was trained in history, primarily at the University of Southern California. And while there, I wrote a dissertation actually in the history of sexuality. So there is a, a bit of uh, relationship to this oral history project. And that resulted in a book uh, called Contacts, Desired Gay and Lesbian Communications and Community that came out in 2006, I think. Uh, so Freedom to Marry was a national nonpartisan organization dedicated to winning marriage for same-sex couples in the United States. And it was founded in 2003 by Evan Wolfson. You spent a couple years interviewing people who were involved in the organization, and the project launched in April 2017. Can you tell us a little bit about how the project came to be? It's actually quite interesting. There's a little prelude to to this project happening, and that is, I want to say in 2013, a book came out uh, by Joe Becker, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. And this book provided really one of the first broad historical accounts of the movement for marriage equality, or as we might talk about later, what a lot of people like to call the movement for the freedom to marry. In the book, she made some pretty outlandish claims. And this book really ruffled a lot of feathers, particularly amongst people who have been working on behalf of the freedom to marry for decades by that point, really uh, dedicated, impactful people like Evan Wolfson or like uh, Mary Bonato, who was the woman who argued uh, the Massachusetts case before the Massachusetts Supreme Court and then 2015 argued the Obergefell case before the U.S. Supreme Court that provided the national resolution. Uh, The Joe Becker book really sidelined these people. So there was a, a bit of an outcry. People like Andrew Sullivan, you know, went to his blog and TV news and other places saying that this book is really a travesty and misrepresents history. Uh, at that point in time, I was really intrigued because I had been following uh, the evolution of the debate around marriage for same-sex couples. And, and I had even reached out to Andrew Sullivan at that point in time and sent an email and said, hey, you know, one way to uh, begin to correct the historical record here is to do an oral history project to get testimony of people who were directly involved and maybe who uh, whose voices were not 
adequately represented in the Joe Becker book. Uh, all I got was an email back from uh, uh, Sullivan's assistant saying that he doesn't have uh, time or inclination right now to, to work on this. So I kind of let it sit there, but it was uh, always an idea that was on, on the back burner in my own head. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to early spring of 2015. By this point in time, the U.S. Supreme Court had granted cert in what became the case Obergefell v. Hodges, which was then decided in June of 2015. And the Freedom to Marry organization, which was led by Evan Wolfson, you know, was not only looking forward to this case being heard in the U.S. Supreme Court, but there was a lot of optimism that the U.S. Supreme Court justices would rule in favor of extending uh, marriage to same-sex couples nationwide. And so people like Evan were beginning to think about the long-term legacy of the work that they did. And so a historian at Yale, George Chauncey, reached out to me and said, hey, listen, the Freedom to Marry organization is interested in perhaps doing some oral history, assuming that the decision comes down in a positive way in June. What do you think about talking to the folks at Freedom to Marry about working with them on this oral history project? And I uh, leapt at it in just a matter of seconds. Very few interviews here at the Oral History Center over the last 15 years have been focused on that topic. And so here's something that I really had a, a personal interest in as well as a pretty uh, deep expertise. And so, of course, I wanted to, to take this on. Uh, and the project was pretty clear from the outset. We were going to do about two dozen interviews, 75 to 90 hours of interviews with a, a wide variety of people, uh, many of whom were involved in the organization Freedom to Marry, but a number of them were their allies and worked closely alongside Freedom to Marry in statewide organizations or in other national groups like the ACLU or the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Can you tell us how Freedom to Marry was formed? Freedom to Marry was established as a campaign which would have a beginning, middle, and end. And once marriage was achieved for same-sex couples nationwide, the campaign would be over. It would be more like electing somebody to office or passing a ballot initiative. This, of course, run, ran a little bit longer than a, than a typical two-year or 18-month campaign. It ran for what, 13 years, uh, but, but that was the idea, that they were running a campaign, and the campaign was always already going to be multidisciplinary. They were out to change people's minds, uh, but they recognized that ultimately the final decision would be made in the U.S. Supreme Court. They never expected that the citizenry of Alabama was going to vote to extend marriage to same-sex couples. So who did you interview for the project? So I think I interviewed 23 individuals. There were some people who were leaders of the Freedom to Marry organization, like Evan Wolfson. Uh, really, Evan is the, the central figure here in the, in the formation of the organization Freedom to Marry. Evan is a really remarkable guy, and his interview, I think, is the centerpiece of this project. It's 16 or 17 hours in length. And his interview, it really focuses on questions of philosophy, strategy, political tactics. He was, he was a, is, was and is a great strategist as well as a conceptual thinker. I also interviewed Scott Davenport, Mark Solomon, who was kind of the political strategist. 
Thalia Zapatos, who was became the movement's message guru. We interviewed a number of younger people. They were all very articulate, really dedicated, smart uh, young people. Most of these people were, were those who were running the statewide campaigns. Uh, they were doing field organizing, kind of what might be thought of as grassroots work, but, but, uh, but a much more scientific approach than simply grassroots activity. It's a field of knowledge called field organizing, and they did it quite well. Uh, we also interviewed people who uh, worked outside of the organization. We interviewed, or I interviewed James Essex, who's the lead of the LGBT HIV AIDS project at the National ACLU offices in New York, a great interview that digs into the legal side of the equation. I also interviewed Kate Kendall, who's the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights in San Francisco. What were some of the most salient findings from the interviews? One of the things that I found to be quite interesting is that these individuals and this campaign might be best thought of in a more traditional political sense of political campaigns, less in the sense of a social movement in which you have mass moments of protest, those kinds of things. Although there was certainly a mass of public opinion motivated By reading these interviews, you really see that successful social change doesn't simply happen through widely shared sentiments across the population. That might be necessary, but that is more of a result of the work done by people like Evan and Mark and Thalia. These people mostly uh, came from political backgrounds. You know, Mark cut his teeth working for a senator. Evan actually worked in the, um, in the office of the special prosecutor for the Iran-Contra affair. Uh, Joe Deutsch is a woman who was the political director for Freedom to Marry, but before that, she worked for labor unions inside the Beltway. She was a lobbyist. Another thing that is very interesting to learn is that in many locations, marriage would not have been extended to same-sex couples without the positive participation of Republicans. And this is something that was shocking to me coming from California, where we didn't really see much positive role amongst Republicans, except Arnold Schwarzenegger came out in opposition to Prop 8, which didn't help, but uh, it didn't hurt either. Uh, But you go to places like New York or Minnesota. Both of those states uh, passed the extension of marriage to same-sex couples in the state legislatures, and it wouldn't have happened without Republican votes, period. One of the things that struck me that is relevant to this point in some clips that I believe are available on uh, the Oral History Center's YouTube is the discussion of language throughout the interviews. And I think it's used as both a universal gateway into understanding why marriage equality is so important, but it's also used as a tool to getting people across both sides of the aisle to have a unified front and to, to want the same things. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the power of language that you found in the interviews, and maybe if you can give an example of that discourse. Yeah, this this movement was... Very discursive. (laughs) And it it happens on many levels. Uh, Even this 
the terminology about just what people were seeking to achieve. On that basic level, there's there's many different ways of talking about it, and all of, and, there, and many people have strong opinions about how it was talked about. So, are we seeking gay marriage? Are we seeking marriage equality? Are we seeking the freedom to marry? Pretty early on, strategists and thinkers on the pro-marriage side, you know, said that. Gay marriage is not exactly what we're asking for. We're not asking for a different kind of marriage. We're asking to open up an existing institution to gay people. We're not trying to create gay marriage next to straight marriage. We're just trying to open up marriage to a, a wider population. Freedom to marry, the move to that direction was, well, the difference between seeking equality and seeking freedom. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that in order to change minds, uh, we were going to have to, or the, the activists, the strategists, were going to have to move beyond winning over people who are on the left and could understand the extension of equality to a broader group of people. But while I think most Americans apprise, appreciate some form of equality, I think that a much broader scope of people can buy into the idea of freedom. And so I think that, that that move had something to do with recognizing that equality might be tricky for some people, whereas freedom is a lot easier. This plays into a, a battle that happened within the movement around the time of Prop 8. And after Prop 8, it was finally resolved to extend anything in a social movement can be resolved through the work of people like Thalia Zapatos, who did a lot of message research and came up with a whole new frame of talking about marriage. You know, the Prop 8 campaign was, was kind of a mess. Clearly, Prop 8 passed when people hoped that it wouldn't, uh, thereby writing discrimination into the California state constitution. The ads were really interesting, uh, the anti-Prop 8 ads, so the pro-marriage for same-sex couple ads, anti-Prop 8. A lot of these were done in terms of rights and benefits. That's how they talked about extending marriage to same-sex couples. There's this famous ad featuring Dianne Feinstein, our senator, and the ad begins with her saying, no matter what you think about marriage, let's not write discrimination into our Constitution. And then the other side had an ad, which was perhaps even better known, that was called the, the Princess ad, in which a young girl comes home to her mom and says, Mommy, Mommy, guess what I learned in school today? A prince can marry a prince. Mommy, when I grow up, can I marry a princess? Which was all about marriage. It was all about children. It was all about fear of the unknown, about what the state is going to do. And how do you how do those mess with each other? I mean, if you're just a you know a mom in a suburb, are you going to be thinking about equality, or the state constitution, or are you going to be thinking about marriage and your child? It's it's a pretty easy question to answer. So Prop Eight passes, and there's a lot of soul searching in the movement afterwards. Dalia Sabatos joins Freedom to Marry, works with some really excellent pollsters like Lisa Grove and some others they start to pour through all of the research that had been done by that point in time. And I think I'll play a bit of a, a clip in, in this mm -hmm. to, for, for Thalia to tell the story. 
It was all the all the focus group reports where you know you hit words and phrases that seemed to come up over and over and over again. We decided they would do these focus groups here in Oregon. And Lisa, her suggestion was, you know, a very simple one. Let's just start these groups. We're not even going to mention gay people. Let's just talk about marriage and see how people feel about marriage. What are the what's the language and the words that they use to describe marriage? And then she said, let's also start looking at values. And partway through, then we'll start talking about same-sex couples and marriage. So, you know, she introduced the idea or the question about um, what marriage meant to them. Well, these were several groups over a couple of nights, but you know, you get people saying ball and chain and you know, kind of funny responses and everybody laughs. Responsibility, love love, commitment, commitment. That came up a lot, love and commitment. There was this real common idea about what marriage meant. So then the focus groups moved into what are some of the values you know you live your life by mm -hmm. and what do you teach your kids? And the golden rule came up, you know, treat others the way you would want to be treated. You know, there were different versions of this, but this kind of basic value of fairness when people would say, even people you don't like that much, or even someone you don't agree with deserves a basic level of fairness in America. So, okay, we got what marriage means. We're talking about these values of fairness. And then the moderator brings up, well, now let's talk about same-sex couples. You know, they, they have this thing called domestic partnership. Some of them want to get married. People just thinking about it, like, I don't understand. Why do gay people want to get married? You know, why do they want, why would they want to get married? So from the back, we're behind the wall. You know, I, I remember scribbling a note with Lisa and we decided to send it in to the moderator and the moderator said, well, why did you decide to get married? Well, I mean, we fell in love and then we decided we wanted to have kids and we wanted to make a life together. So for us, it was only natural to do that. You mean gay people might think that same thing? They might want to get married for that same reason? I mean, in that kind of suspicious way, really wondering what the motives were. So, you know, very quickly people come around to, this is the thing that kind of lets them off the hook. Well, they can have a domestic partnership or they can have a civil union and that's fine for them and it leaves marriage to us and everything's okay. Right, but if you said a little while ago that the golden rule was this most important value in your life, treating other people the way you would want to be treated. And now what you're saying is marriage is good enough for you, but it's not good enough for them. So how does that work with the golden rule? And then we got people kind of like looking up at the ceiling, putting their head in their hands, like their mouth is dropping open and what the researchers call cognitive dissonance. Now they're realizing they've got a problem. People had these deep inner conflict about whether other people could join in marriage. There were these conflicts and this sort of turmoil, but that in a way, it was kind of important to have this turmoil that we needed to raise for people a value-based conflict. So the, the values piece was the way to kind of get them to bring this up in a new light and kind of think again about the issue. So what's happening in that clip, I think, is that we're getting a real insight into how activists, how strategists learn. They learn by listening to people. They learn not to try to tell people something 
that is untrue, but rather they learn how to align the values of the movement with the values of the public at large. Not in a disingenuous way, but in a way that's true to both. And when, when the truths of both match, then you have a winning political strategy. And thus the power of language. And thus the power of language. And so, you know, you move from this frame of rights and benefits, same-sex couples saying they want to get married because of these 200 benefits or whatever that we're supposed to get, to a frame of saying we want to get married because we love one another, because maybe we want to have kids too, and if we have kids, we want those kids to be raised in a, in a married, coupled family. And that was not dishonest at all. That was exactly, I think, where most couples who wanted to get married were. Well, and so there is this alignment that happens that's quite interesting. Uh, and that's personal, and that's relatable, and right. there, there's the crux of the argument there, is that this is something that we all understand. Right. Yeah. So the organization officially closed in February of 2016. Do you feel like the marriage movement is still relevant today? I think it's extraordinarily relevant, and I, I think that this oral history collection comes out at a really important time. You know, there's a lot of emotion and, and in response to the election of Trump into the presidency, and we've seen just innumerable public protests. Some have been very small and forgettable. Some have been very large, like the Women's March, that, you know, had some impact. But I think what this oral history project shows is that as a culture, we have a tendency to fetishize the spectacle of social protest. See that as an end in and of itself, not simply a means to getting to an end. And so when something is upsetting you, you go out and protest. And there's no, there's no necessary link between that protest and change happening. So in order for change to happen, you need to figure out what messages are going to not simply enliven the impassions of those who are already on your side and instead actually begin to speak to and with and perhaps convince those who are in the movable middle that something needs to be done about a particular issue. I think these interviews show that quite definitively. Where can we find these interviews? Yes, these interviews are available uh, for free, in transcript form, through the website of the Oral History Center. Actually, if you search Freedom to Marry Oral History on your web browser, you'll probably find that the first four of five uh, hits that come up are uh, some facet of this project. We currently have three 15-minute videos that feature clips from the interviews available. The, the transcripts are there, and I encourage people to read them and use them for their own projects and school papers and dissertations and books, etc. And inspiration too. So I, I thank you for, for doing these interviews, especially at a time where the country is divided and we all feel like we want to do something. These are really instructive as to how to make a change, how to think about things, how to take a step back and reassess. So thank you for doing these interviews and for your project and for your, your work here. So And for your time today. Thank you, Shanna. This has been a production of the Oral History Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Thanks for listening and join us in late fall 2017 for our next full season.